cloth, y'all would get ripped apart. You want a diamond, then you gotta get it in the dark. We dropping nuggets like Carmelo went to Rucker Park. Now we eating from state to state, we scrape the plate. I put my eggs in a basket, took a leap of faith. I took a chance, now we grow and see the impact. Decoding success with special guests, now let's bring Matt. Welcome to the show, ladies and gentlemen. This is episode number 190 of the Decoding Success Podcast, and you are rocking with your host, Matt Labrie. We are officially in the countdown, people. We are in the countdown to episode number 200. But before I get you excited about that, I want to amp you up and juice you up about what we have going on right here, right now in the present moment with yet another game-changing agent of change individual that is hopping on our show, dedicating her time to help us change our lives for the better in numerous different buckets. With that being said, we are joined by our friend Swan Sit, who has formerly worked as the head of digital marketing at Nike, Revlon, and Estee Lauder, just to name a few. On top of that, she's modernized 100-year-old brands, and she's partnered with unexpected influencers just like Chelsea Handler. On top of that, currently, Swan is the independent board director director at publicly traded companies Edgewell and Nova Bay. She is also working as an operating partner at AF Ventures. She's the CMO of Annie Energy, which is launched by TikTok stars Josh Richards and Bryce Hall. If she doesn't have enough going on, she's absolutely crushing it on Clubhouse and Instagram and these other social platforms where she's really making an impact. And you want to know what? She's bringing all of that right here, right now to decoding success to make an impact on this show. So I want to throw this out there. There. When you feel impacted by this episode, make sure you're sharing it, put it in your group chats, put it on your Instagram stories, and make sure you're tagging Swan. Make sure you tag the show so we can show you love back. It's always a great way to show recognition for the hard work, for the effort, for the time that's dedicated right here on this show. And trust me, I'm not the only one that appreciates it. All of our guests do as well. So make sure you're doing that for everyone. On top of that, if you have not subscribed to the show on YouTube yet, make sure you do that in the show show notes of this episode. And now without further ado, we bring to you our friend Swanset. Swan, welcome to the show Decoding Success. Really excited to decode your success today. So thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Matt. I'm so excited to be here with you. Awesome. Cool. Now, first question, I kind of told you this is going to dictate and, you know, show us the route we're going today. How does Swan personally define success? moving the needle forward every day. And sometimes it's big, sometimes it's small, sometimes it's your life, and sometimes it's someone else's. And that's actually the biggest evolution I've had because when I was younger, success used to be titles and achievements and status and wealth. Okay. And as I look back on how I measure a life well lived, it's about having impact on your life and someone else's. If I can leave this earth having impacted someone's life or a group of people's lives a little bit better then that's a life well lived. So it's a big evolution because for my entire career, for decades, I was corporate. So it was the latter, right? You climb up, you get a raise, you get the position, you get more responsibility, larger team. And since I left the corporate world a year and a half ago, it's really about impacting my life and others. Such a massive change. I love that. Now, my first question to that is, does moving the needle, what happens if it moves backwards? Right. Because I've personally found that for me to move forward, I've had to go I've had to go go backwards. Right. So I'm just curious. I want to I want to learn about that. Yeah. Well, the path to success never looks like this. Right. It looks like this. Right. 
Right. And so it's a sum of a life well lived, not having to do it all in a day. The people often, for example, talk about balance. And I said, that's a great idea to have, but it's the average of balance throughout my life, right? Certain stages, I hustle harder. Certain stages, I can breathe a little easier. I prefer to think of it as a seesaw. If it averages out over balance, if over a life well lived, you have that needle movement or impact, then it's a life well lived. But I don't think we can be so minute about it every day. What it does do, what it is helpful to do, though, is every day to think about it in small increments. And even if that day is a backwards movement, what's next month look like? What's next week look like? Mm. So it's always having that North Star as an inspiration, but not as a daily measurement. Right. Now, what about from a mindset perspective when you do see yourself moving backward now society and I'm guilty of this, right? Like I can definitely find myself comparing. And when I see myself going backward and I see other people going forward, I'm like, fuck, what am I doing? You know, so like from a mindset perspective, what's your advice there? Oh, you could drive yourself crazy thinking like that. I mean, in the corporate world, at least you can look around the org chart and titles and status. Now that I'm in the creator world, you could go crazy looking at the thousands of creators out there and comparing yourself. But this is not my piece of advice. I'm sure you've heard it before. Don't compare yourself to being someone else. You're never going to be as good at being that person as they are. What do you want yourself to be? And if over time you're still moving towards that, that's okay. And someone else gave me a good piece of advice the other day. There's going to be so many opportunities when you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail, right? Don't have FOMO over it. Just know you're going to miss a huge percentage of the things out there. Once you accept that, then you start thinking of a mindset of abundance. Instead of all the things I'm missing out there that everyone else has, what do I have? Holy crap. What I have is pretty damn awesome and I'm so lucky to have it. So you start putting on the blinders. I mean, you want to be able to look around the landscape and know what's out there, but be grateful for what you've got and just accept FOMO is a constant state of life. We see it more often than ever with social and digital, putting it in our hands and in front of our faces, knowing that FOMO is a constant state of life. It actually makes it a lot easier to accept. Well, of course they're doing those great things and I don't have them, but I have this. And I just accept that as a constant state. So it's a big shift in mindset because in corporate things are so linear and siloed that you could probably measure a little bit more. But when you get to this blank open slate and the entire world is your oyster, but also your competition, you could drive yourself crazy. So I accept that the ocean's really big. The world is the oyster and I'm going to not see 90% of it. But holy crap, let's do this 10% I've got really, really freaking well. Right. I love that. Now, what was it that shifted your mindset when it comes to defining success in the way you do today versus how you previously did? Was it a certain person? Was it people? Was it events or was it just life? It was leaving corporate. Okay. And I was corporate for decades. That's all I ever knew. Now, so much of this comes from childhood, right? Our inner child, our upbringing, our values from our parents leave such an indelible mark. My parents came to the U.S. when I was six years old, really humble beginnings, didn't even finish middle school. So while they worked their way to get like upper or lower middle class in Hong Kong, they had to start all over in the U.S. without speaking English and forget even having a high school diploma. They didn't even start high school. So for us, education was always the thing that would unlock doors. So we used to joke an A minus is an Asian F. 
I got a B plus once and my parents didn't talk to me for a month. They had parent teacher conferences. I mean, they were panicked about the B plus and to this day, it's the only non A on my high school transcript. And I celebrate that, right? Because I still got into good schools. I turned out okay. That wasn't the defining moment. But when that's all that's ingrained into you, almost at a cultural as well as a familial necessity, right? Because culturally Chinese very much value education, but as a familial necessity, I mean, it was the one thing that was going to change my parents' trajectory to mine, right? In one generation, we went from not finishing middle school, not having enough food, to me having two degrees and having corporate, a corporate America executive job. I mean, that's life-changing and education was that moment. The problem is though, when your entire self-worth and identity are tied to achievement in terms of first academic success and then professional success, it's really hard to let go of. But a few years ago, I mean, I was in my dream job. I was the global head of digital marketing for Nike. I got to work on the Dream Crazy campaign featuring Colin Kaepernick. So to help that team was an incredible defining moment of my career. But I wasn't that happy. And I realized there's so many things I wanted to do in this world that any corporation, regardless of which one it was, wasn't going to let me do. So leaving corporate not only opened the possibility for what things I might build, it also meant saying goodbye to the entire identity and self-worth that I knew my entire life, which was the names of companies like Bain or Nike or Estee Lauder or the titles. So I think realizing there's so much what I want more of what I wanted to do in this world that I could measure that value and success, not by a title, but by impact, that was the pivotal point, but unfortunately came with an entire redefinition of my identity and self-worth. So it was an amazing journey over the last year and a half. And without taking that big step, but also having that mind, mindset shift, there's no way I'd be in the creator space now because the amount of confidence and uh, community you need to be a creator is so different than the corporate community. And it has to be an intentional journey or it can be really difficult. Right. Now, I want to dive into that identity shift, but I have to know this. It's like uh, something that's like burning inside of me right now. What class was that B plus in? It was um, composition, which is crazy because that same year I won a national writing award for Ayn Rand's work. So I have government, the U.S. government and, you know, like like published authors voting me in as one of the top 10 essays in the country. I got to go to the U.N. with a group of people and uh, give a tour, get a tour and see New York City. So I have this side telling me you're the you're a great writer. And I've got this side telling me, wait, you're not so good. You're a B plus writer. And luckily it turned out OK. But, you know, I think the way we set up our education system is also, you know, due for uh, a a revised, you know, a revisement, right? Because I, you know, we learn in linear ways and we expect all people to learn in linear ways, but there's like 16 types of linear ways. So in that case, I think, you know, I'm still grateful for that education. Like I said, it opened so many doors and got me to where I am, but I don't know if it's always the best measure of talent. Right, right, right. Now talk to me about that identity work that you did, because that is something that, I mean, listen, I'm doing it right now. I'm grateful for it, but it is not easy whatsoever. Like what we are passed down from our parents, from our grandparents, our great grandparents, what we take on from society. And like when we can finally crack the shell and go deeper and deeper and deeper and find out who we really are, it's like truly magical. So what was that journey like for you? 
It's a few things. I mean, most of these journeys are internal and that's not to say that it's easy, but most of it can be worked on by ourselves and maybe some people in our community, whether it's professionally or socially. There are sometimes constructs though that make that identity journey a little difficult. So for example, I've sent money home to my parents every month since I finished college. Even when I was in grad school, I still did. So there's certain responsibilities that some of us have that don't allow us to be completely blank slate about it, right? To leave the corporate world, I couldn't go discover myself for three years. I needed a paycheck to help my family, right? So if you put aside those things, which I don't want to, I don't want to make them seem unimportant, right? But I think it's a separate type of journey, right? I think once you figure out who you are, it's a then a problem solving mission to figure out how to make the pieces Lego together versus having that as part of the identity. Cause sometimes those responsibilities can seem so crushing that it, it limits our ability to do that work. So putting those things aside, um, part of it was, I think, moving from New York to Portland. I was in New York for 13 years, moved to Portland, Oregon to work for Nike, and they're very different cities. I'm a New Yorker through and through. I don't live there anymore, but I have a ring that has the New York skyline on it, right? The energy, the concentration of success and talent and diversity of ideas, diversity of race and ethnicity and culture. I mean, I love the energy from that city. And I was always able to shut the door if I needed quiet time, but I was never someone who thought the city was overwhelming, right? Right. To then go to Portland and feel like, wow, everyone drinks craft beer, wears flannel shirts. Like I fit in like a sore thumb, right? I'm wearing New York runway clothes and people are in fleeces and driving Subarus. So that gave me the first, um, first uh, moment of thinking about is where I live important. And it's the first time I took New York for granted. I was there for 13 years and loved it, but I realized, wow, I've always had corporations tell me where I should live. At which point do I get to decide that? Because my community, I mean, being single without children, your community is your tribe and your family. So where you live is actually a little bit more important versus having a nuclear family that's always going to be your anchor. So that was the first piece of that and realizing at some point, I'm going to want to call the shots on at least where I live, if not what I want to do. Then the unfortunate thing is like, it's not just that last job throughout all of my jobs. I mean, I've been very lucky to have the ones I had, but when somebody asked me what I wanted to be when I grew up, I still don't have an answer. I didn't have an answer when I was a kid. I still don't have an answer now. And I've come to the realization that I don't have to have an answer because Mm -hmm. as long as I'm evolving and I'm still learning, that's good enough for me. You know, it's funny, when we first got to the country, I mentioned I came here when I was six, right? We went to a US supermarket and even back then in the eighties, we had those barcode scanners at the checkout. You know, when you're paying, you scan the barcode and it pops up what the item is and how much it costs. I was fascinated. And maybe that's a precursor to me thinking about technology and how it impacts the consumer experience, because that's what I do now. But I'd never seen you be able to swipe a barcode and have data come up. So I looked up at my parents when I was six years old and said, I want to be a checkout girl when I grow up. And I just told you about my parents. They're tiger parents. It was Harvard or bust, right? So they just were mortified. And I think... To this day, I still don't know what I want to be when I grow up. I know what I like to do. I know the impact I want to have in this world. But by asking myself these questions, it came closer and closer to saying, maybe it's not being part of a corporation. Mm -hmm. And that's okay. Now, that being said, some people are born entrepreneurs. They have the drive. They have the passion. They have the energy and almost like a blissful ignorance of failure. I don't have that. I calculate risk carefully. I'm an operator. I have plans of implementation. 
So the journey for me to become a creator or an entrepreneur took a lot longer. I needed to feel like I understood my craft, that I had a network, and I knew at least even if I didn't want to know, like know what that title was, but what I wanted to do on this earth before I could make that exit. So it was all those pivot points of like, and all those conversations are unique to each person, right? It's dependent on your upbringing, your community, et cetera, and even at the point in life that you are. All those things came together when I asked myself those questions to arrive at the point. It's like, maybe it's time to try something else. Mm. The biggest part of it, though, that made me actually take the leap, which is interesting, is sort of when I left New York, I was really scared of leaving. I mean, I've traveled to 87 countries, so going to Portland is not a big deal. Living somewhere else is a big deal. And somebody said to me, if you don't like it, you can come back. New York's still going to be here. And so the way I looked at this is like, okay, well, I've left corporate. I might try to go be an entrepreneur for a little while. Let's start with some consulting. If I don't like it or if I fail, guess what? I'm probably going to be able to get another corporate job. So in all of those things that I talked about in my journey on all the self-questioning, et cetera, the one thing that made it okay for me to say, I'm going to make that leap is, wow, well, if I don't like it or if I fail at it, I can probably go back. Right. And that's so important because we work ourselves into such a tizzy and we, you know, make it seem like every decision is a large decision, large decision in life, because who knows what might happen next. But in most things in life, we can probably go back. And so that gave me a lot of that energy and that courage to take that step. And, you know, part of that also is the community and tribe behind you. So, you know, it takes a village, whether it's building something great or even getting through journeys of life. And I can't be more grateful for my mentors and my friends that helped me through that process. I love that. Now, why do you feel like it's from a personal perspective, like, and I, I am this way as well. Like I, I start, if I start a business today and it fails, like I, I'll like go against the grain as long as I can to just like not make it fail. So is it like a fear of failure um, in regards to like going back? I think there's two, there's two types of failure, fear of failure. There's one that's innate because type A's don't like to fail. There's another that's, t- that's bred in the corporate world because you can't mess up a corporate. We say fail fast, fail cheap. We don't really mean it because if you screw up at work, you get fired. So whether it's innate and it's a certain type of personality trait or whether it's ingrained in you because of the way the corporate structures work, right? Either way, it's a fear of failure. And I think that's absolutely a part of it because if your self-worth is tied to whatever your definition of success is, failing is not just "Eh, tomorrow's a different day. Failure is a a reduction of that self-worth. And as much as we aren't conscious of that, I think it's an innate part in all of our personalities. We might define self-worth in different ways. Maybe it's physical attractiveness, it's business success, who knows, but whatever we define that, that sense of success or failure in, that act of succeeding or failing is much bigger emotionally and psychologically than what that act represents to the outside world. Sure. Definitely agree. Yeah. hundred percent, a hundred percent. Now you said you traveled to 87 countries. Yeah. Which is your favorite? Oh, that's so hard because they're favorites for different reasons. I'll tell you some of the more unique ones. Okay. Antarctica, because it is so untouched and pristine to set foot on an island that maybe a few thousand people have ever seen is an unreal experience. I also really enjoyed Shackleton's journey. I've read multiple leadership books on him. I mean, he's an explorer that went from the UK all the way to Antarctica. And because we didn't know much about being landlocked in winters down there, that boat got landlocked for an entire winter. It got Mom. stuck in ice. 
And he kept his entire crew alive for an entire winter with a tiny fraction of rations. And so they tell stories about any other leader not only would have lost most of its crew, the whole crew probably would have perished. Right. But the way he led that crew, the way he actually built community in that is the reason every single person survived. There's one one passage from the book I really love. Everyone got a third of a cup of tea with a cube of sugar every morning. The sugar was for energy and the hot tea was to keep them warm, right? Every morning, that's all they got to start the day. One day, one of the members of the crew was so cold, shivering, shaking, he dropped his tin cup in the snow. And of course, immediately the tea disintegrated with the sugar and tears are welling up in his eyes. And without a word, every single person in the crew tipped a little bit of their tea into his cup. That's the culture that he bred on that boat and the reason they all survived. Stories like that help me think about not only how I run my teams, but how I move through life, right? We move with a care of abundance and a care for our community because it takes a village. So for me to be able to actually get to Antarctica after reading Shackleton's Journeys, working with one of my business school professors, Atendra Wadwa, on how to take those lessons and turn them into teachings in the classroom, like to set foot in Antarctica was a dream because to see Deception Island and all these things that I read about was so cool. I love so that. Antarctica was high up on the list. I love going back to Hong Kong where I'm from. I still speak the language. Hated it when I was a kid because my parents forced me to speak Chinese at home so I wouldn't lose the language. Hated it for 18 years. Now I'm so grateful for it because I speak Cantonese fluently. So going back to Hong Kong is almost like being a local, even though I left when I was six. The pace, the energy, the food, the culture, the, the melting pot, Hong Kong's amazing. Some of the more beautiful places, I will say, uh, I go to a Buddhist country every year because they're so grateful and the peace in which they move through this world is really impressive. Mm. So, for example, in Tibet, they wear shoes where the boots, the toes turn up on the shoes. And it looks funny because it looks like a genie, but it's because they kill fewer insects when they walk the earth. Wow. So every year trying to get to Tibet or um, Nepal or Bhutan really resets the soul and lets me come back with my tank, my fuel tank filled with a little kindness and inspiration. Um, Going to North Korea, I went there solo because I was so curious to peek behind the curtain. I went there solo and got this crazy, amazing tour of North Korea, got to see the DMZ from the North Korea side, got to see the birthplace and the villages of their leaders. I mean, it was mind-blowing. If you put aside all the political implications, you realize that there's a really rich culture there. Mm. Koreans are actually just Koreans. They're North and South because we drew a physical, political, military divide between those two countries. But eating the food and meeting a handful of the people, they're just Korean. And they, if anyone else, actually want to be reunited as a culture. Forget the politics and the government. It's still one country. So every country teaches me something new. I mean, I could go on forever, but culture exposure creates empathy. And that's one of my most valued traits in me and the people around me. So the more I see, the more I experience, the more I'm stretched, the more empathetic I am, and the more I can help broadcast those messages because the world's only getting smaller. For sure. Now, travel travel is amazing. That's why I had to ask that question. Like you grow so much from traveling. Absolutely yeah. incredible. I love that. Now, what was your biggest takeaway from being in corporate? If you could pinpoint one thing. Now, your experience is incredible. Uh, you have a resume like no other. Like what you've been able to accomplish is absolutely amazing. Like what was your biggest takeaway from being in corporate? The funny thing is we talked mostly in this conversation so far about why I wanted to leave corporate. Mm. But it teaches you so much. 
right? I think I speak with a lot of entrepreneurs. I spend most of my time with entrepreneurs because I'm such an operator. It's a really good balance for me to be around people who stretch and inspire me. And they always crap all over corporate. Oh, they're slow. They're unimaginative. Well, it's a $35 billion company. If everyone ran around doing whatever they wanted, we'd have Enron again, right? (laughs) So I think corporate, we should acknowledge for what it's good at and what it's not. These companies existed for centuries because they did something right, right? And if you're publicly traded, you're beholden not just to Wall Street, but to your shareholders. So you can't do anything you want. So I would say there's a lot of things corporate does right. Process, HR, not saying all the policies are always right, but having those is how you scale without having to take everything as an everything on as an individual problem. You need to standardize, you need to have process to make sure that you scale and you're getting the benefit of that scalability, right? Um, that being said, yeah, they absolutely need to move faster. They need to be more modernized about how they think about how people learn, what they define success as, even something as simple as, we assume that everyone's motivated by a title change and an increase in salary. I actually asked my team, what do you guys want? And you'd be amazed at the answers. I'd love to have more mentorship. I'd love to have more days off. I'd love to have 10% of my time like the Googlers do to build the side project that the company is going to fund. All these different things that had nothing to do with an increase in title or salary. So I think there's certain things that need to change, but oh my God. I mean, if you look at some of the training I've had from these companies, Bain taught me how to deal with ambiguity and solve problems. That's digital every day. Rubbermaid, I was there and I learned how to run a PL and learned how to build a product from idea to manufacturing and design to getting it on the store shelves and bringing consumers back in right? You can't tell me a D2C company is not going to learn from that, right? I mean, Estee Lauder taught me how to think about not all products are created equal, right? And when you look at something specifically like the beauty industry, it's not one size fits all. There's so much personalization in there that creates the need for data. Before you even know the importance of data, the business itself merits it. What shade of skin you have, oily versus dry, all these things are the key to making sure people buy the right product. That's how we get satisfaction and repeat purchase. Forget even the digital thing tools we're using, but that was why a beauty counter existed. That's why you had a person in a white lab coat asking to analyze your skin, right? It wasn't for, you know, the luxury of the brand. It's to make sure we got you the right product. And so that taught me the importance of data before data was even a thing, right? This was in 2010. So I think corporate's really helpful for all these things. I think even entrepreneurs would benefit from doing a stint in corporate for a while because you learn so much and think about how you can take that to then scale your business. That's Mm. life-changing and game-changing. The reason why I mentor and advise so many entrepreneurs is they all want that corporate experience. So I tell young entrepreneurs, don't be shy to go do that for a few years because the knowledge you'll leave with will help you for the rest of your career. Right. 100% agree with that as well. Now, Swan, what is a question you wish more people would ask you and how would you answer it? The reason I ask this specifically to you, I ask this rather often, but I know you get a ton of questions, especially on Clubhouse, and I can only imagine where else. So I'm curious, like, what do you want to be asked more of and how would you answer that? Everyone asks what success looks like. Mm. No one asks what failure looks like. And I don't think failure is the exact opposite to success, right? And so... To be honest, I don't know what the answer is. I don't know if I've even been asked this question before. So thank you for that because I do get asked a lot of questions and I've asked other people this question. And I can't believe I haven't thought about the answer for myself, but 
it's not that we want to focus on failure. I think being aware that the opposite of what we define success as is not exactly the same as what we define failure as. For me, it actually happens to be the same, but I would bet you that failure is due to fears, right? And um, success, like I said, we define in different ways, whether it's personal or professional. So if I had to think about what failure means, in some ways it is not having the impact of moving the needle that I talked about, which is what I define success as. But in some ways, I think it's actually being lonely. Mm-hmm. I wonder if failure or what I'm scared of is being lonely. And yes, that's exacerbated because we were all locked away for the past year during a pandemic. But for someone who's an extrovert, that's actually a really big fear. And it's something I have to be conscious of moving into the creator and entrepreneur world because you don't have an office with a bunch of coworkers. You don't have a big team that's built for you anymore. You have to construct that. So, and the way, by the way, I talk about extrovert and introvert is more like a Myers-Briggs assessment, right? People sometimes reduce it to your social skills. Are you good at managing people or not managing, but like managing your relationships with people and conversations with people or not? And I don't think that's where it is. I think extroverts get their energy from large groups of people and varieties of people, whereas introverts get their energy from smaller groups, one on one conversations. And yes, even some alone time. Mm -hmm. So if you look at it through that construct, me being an extrovert and getting energy from people whether it's war rooms where I'm, you know, working with my team for three days on a project or coming to a city and throwing a 30 person dinner to see all the people that I haven't had a chance to connect with, my energy comes from that. So I think the fear I have that I carry after a year like this is being lonely because I no longer have the coworker construct. I'm nomadic. I don't live in one city anymore. So I no longer have my neighborhood friends. I think that fear is actually more rooted in maybe being lonely. And I, I recognize that that's probably a lot of people's fear after a year of being inside. And luckily I think the world's starting to wake up, but if we had to be really honest about it, and part of what I love about this creator world is no one writes my script, I can be honest. I wanna be vulnerable and say, it's okay to feel lonely and be afraid of that. But by most of more of us saying that, by nature we find each other and we're less lonely, right? So we can help each other by helping ourselves. I think it's really healthy to actually embrace that lonely feeling. Um, I I think, honestly, a lot of people run away from that, right? Because they don't necessarily like what they feel when they are alone, right? Because that's when things start to come up. And that's when that deep inner work, you know, healing work starts to like really surface. And it's like, holy shit, I need to tend to this. And that's when they'll grab a bottle of wine or that's when they'll grab the cell phone and scroll through Instagram or hop on Clubhouse or, and there's nothing wrong with doing that stuff in moderation whatsoever. I I do all of that. Um, But I, I really, really think that I think lonely is actually a really good thing to an extent, you know? Yeah, I agree. So then when people feel lonely, And to your point, they grab Clubhouse or Instagram or something, and that's like the quick fix. Instead of doing that, what advice do you have for people on how to combat that or how to sit with it and learn how to process it? So you're asking me questions now. I love this. (laughs) It's a conversation, Matt. You've done interviews. Think about the sum of the knowledge you've gotten from all the people you've interviewed. I'm being greedy. I want to hear a Notes version of all the best advice you've gotten. (laughs) (laughs) Well, when it comes to being lonely, I think the best thing that I've, number one, accumulated from the interviews and also just learned through my own 28 years of experience on earth 
is, well, first of all, I could say very transparently that I was so quick to numb for so many years, like so quick to numb, whether that meant, you know, going out all the time so that I wasn't alone or whether that meant when I was home alone, I would nonstop be on the phone or I would overread or I would overeat or any, like I did all of that. I really, really did. But after this year in June of 2020, going into June of 2021, I've just done like an immense amount of transformational work on my inner self, which literally cleared years of suppression and all of that. So when I got to a point of where I was alone, right? I mean, listen, we're, we were in a lockdown. I would just take out a pen and pad and literally just wrote down everything that came up all of the time, whether it meant I was exploring the dreams I had, because obviously my subconscious was firing while I was sleeping and just like bringing up all this random shit, or whether it was when I was awake and I couldn't focus at my desk because I was just thinking about a relationship that just broke off, right? Like any time that I was actually alone, that is exactly what I did. And it was an absolute game changer. Wow. That's incredible advice. You know, as I think about this year, in those moments, whether it's of loneliness or frustration or FOMO to your point in comparing mm-hmm. yourself to others, I'm not great at asking for help. And I think that's typical of a lot of type A personalities, right? We expect ourselves to be able to do everything and handle it all. So I don't ask for help very often. So one of the hacks I did this year is there's a handful of people in my community that I know will always pick up the phone. Mm-hmm. For some reason, I don't call them when I'm in need because there's that whole, like, I can't ask for help thing. So my hack for that is, you know, when you have people in your lives that you have such deep connections with, there's usually some sort of memory or story that really bonds you, right? Right. So on each person, I figure out what that code word is. And if I need to talk to somebody and I can't say, hey, I could really use some friend time today, I just text them that one word as a bat signal. So for one, you know, for one friend, it might be Necker because that's where we met for another friend, you know. And so I've asked my friends, I'm not great at asking for help, but know that I need it sometimes. Can I come up with a code word? And this goes two ways. If we ever get that code word from each other, the next minute we can get some time on the phone. We'll pick up the phone and call each other and check in on each other. I'll tell you, it's been life changing. Yeah. in the calls themselves, just knowing that lifeline exists was great. So I guess it's like the opposite of a safe word, right? (laughs) But I was like, wait, this is game changing. And now also when I think of that word, I have such an incredible dose of euphoria because that's such a wonderful memory with that friend that sometimes that's enough to change my mood. So it's one of the things I did this year too. And it's, you know, not always in the face of loneliness. I know we were just talking about that, but sometimes we just have bad days and those are okay. You know? But it's a little bit of a trigger for me to, you know, if I need a friend, they're there. But just even sometimes thinking of calling that friend already lifts my mood. Now, why did you necessarily feel that you struggle reaching out for help? Like, do do you feel like it was because you felt like you were a burden knowing your friends may have been busy or whatever the case is? That's exactly it. But it's not even a conscious train of thought. It's just embedded deep. Yeah. 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 And I think it's it comes from maybe the immigrant experience or mentality. It comes from the focus on achievement and uh, being Mm. self-sufficient. I don't know, but this is not the first time I've had that. And maybe we self-select, but a lot of my friends have the same problem. So I think hard charging driven people, especially when there's an expectation of success put on from them at a young age, they often feel the same way. 
Mm. I should be able to handle it myself. I shouldn't need to ask anyone else. And you don't want to bug your friends. But the funny thing is anytime a friend's called me and needed me, I've never once thought, wow, they're burdening me. So I don't know what this is and I don't know what to even call it, but I know that it's happened a lot with a lot of people I know for the past year. And we need to find tools to fix it because it isn't so funny for us to like mentally have this block that we're burdening people when we're actually not. And it's such a simple, rational thing to fix unless you're in the middle of that. Right. A hundred. So I'm actually studying this and I appreciate you being vulnerable and sharing that because I've been studying it from a men's perspective. I'm actually working on a project because I mean, men are just so prone to suppressing and, you know, holding back and, you know, we don't want to show weakness or whatever the case is. And I've been studying it for, I want to say literally the past year. Um, but it's really interesting hearing it from you as well, because it's not just the one-sided thing. It's, it's not just men that experience that. And I really, really appreciate you, you know, you sharing that. But I know I need to let you run. Do you have time for two more questions? No, let's do a few more. I'm okay, cool. This. Okay, awesome. I'm glad. Now, I always ask these two questions on the way out. And honestly, I say two, but it might be more than that because questions are just spur. But the, the first one I have is what is a piece of advice that Swan has been given that she didn't want to hear at the time it was given to her, but proved to be true? Not everyone is your friend and that's okay. Mm. So coming to this country, like I mentioned, I was six. We didn't grow up with a lot. And I kind of stuck out like a sore thumb, not just because I'm an Asian kid in predominantly Caucasian Boston going to Catholic school. I looked different and sounded different than anyone else. I also had a bowl haircut and big purple glasses. It wasn't even a bowl haircut. It's like a helmet haircut, right? Like a Lego, you know how they snap (laughs) on the hair? That's what it looked like. So I was not a cool looking kid. I had hand-me-down clothes and I ran around talking about space and science all the time. So I didn't have a lot of friends. And I think part of the reason why I have such a strong network and I have a lot of empathy is because I didn't get shown that when I was a kid. And so much of our inner child is based on our childhood experiences. And so I think I spent most of life collecting lots of friends being there for everyone, making sure I helped people out. And at some point, not only are you stretched too thin because you can't be everyone's friend, you start learning that maybe not everyone has the same intentions as you do. Mm -hmm. And that was a really tough lesson to learn, right? Because when I was in my 30s, I had a friend that, you know, was my best friend, but was actually more of a friend of me. And I couldn't see that. Or when I left the corporate world, the rude awakening of some people, like, cause I'd been corporate my whole life. So I went from job to job to job. So even though there were changes, it was consistent in terms of having corporate access and budgets, right? There's a handful of people that I'm no longer in touch with since I left the corporate world, cause I wasn't useful to them anymore. And that feels awful. So when someone tells you, not everyone is your friend and that's okay. It sucks to hear it because you felt like you were wronged or you lost a friend. There's such a profound sense of loss in there. But coming to terms with that, actually that's absolutely true. And by trimming those edges, I'm able to focus on the core of my community, people who do reciprocate that time and intention. And those are just more fruitful relationships. It doesn't even mean that everything that was trimmed at the edges was malicious. It might just be that you're not on the same page or you were friends at a certain point in life and that changes. But coming to terms with loss, especially social friends or romantic relationships was something that I didn't wanna hear because all I wanted was to be surrounded by amazing people. But realizing that 
as I went through the journey coming out the other side, you're like, wow, that was so obvious. Why didn't I realize that at the start? But the funny thing about humans, right? We all give amazing advice to our friends, but we can't take our own advice. (laughs) It's so clear when it's your best friend, but you can't see if it's you. But I guess if we were all so smart, then we would never have any advice to give. Right. So um, I want to talk about that, though, because I totally agree. I'm just curious, like, why do you think that? Is it because we are personally in the situations where we need to give ourselves that advice? Or, I mean, like, we can see very clearly when we're not in our friend's situation, like, we, we're just like, oh, like, come on, this is what you got to do. Uh, I'm just curious, like, what's your take on that? Emotions are really strong in human psychology. Like we sometimes separate emotions and psychology. In some ways, I think the studies of them are quite different, but we can't separate those. We're just one being. Mm -hmm. And when you look at the facts of a situation, if you were to look at a report with numbers, you might come up with certain conclusions. But when you overlay the context of the story, in which I guess the equivalent to humans is overlaying the emotion, we have an incredible ability to convince ourselves of anything, Mm -hmm. right? Well, this person's like that, but maybe I'm different, right? In the dating game, we always say that maybe we're the exception, right? (laughs) When we're in it, our emotions, which make us who we are, and I would never not want those to be present, but the emotions have this weird ability, like a weird ability or, you know, power over our brains to overtake logic. Mm -hmm. And I actually don't mind that because that's what makes us human and interesting and emotions make every day feel different. Otherwise we'd be completely monotonous. But the nature of our own emotions overtaking our ability to reason or logic or see that we're part of something that's much bigger and just kind of a number in the average, you know, average um, outcome of things um, that makes us that makes us kind of convince ourselves of otherwise. But here's the reason why I think it's really important. If we were all logical and followed our own advice, we'd never have dreamers and entrepreneurs. We'd never go to the moon. We'd never go to Mars. Because if we all self-rationalized away from those emotions and dreams, we'd all be very similar. So I actually celebrate that, but that's why you need a mirror to the left and the right of you to help you realize, okay, so maybe this one isn't so different and I should have seen that coming. But you know, every one of those, remember we started the conversation, it's never like this, it's like this. You need those bumps to appreciate the highs. Yeah, totally. Sometimes I get really annoyed that life isn't linear. I'm like, why the fuck is it like just always up and down? You're a go-getter, you just wanna, you know how to get to the finish line, so let me get there. Yeah, totally, totally. I love this. Last question for you though. Yeah. If Swan can only give one piece of advice for the rest of her life, meaning, you know, you're on Clubhouse or you're podcasting or on social or in the classroom or writing a book, whatever. If you could only give one piece of advice for the rest of your life, what would it be? Oh, gosh. One piece of advice. You're asking me to predict the next few decades of my life as well. Assuming nothing changes. <laughs> well, who knows? You might be on next decade. Who knows? So from from like here on out. Okay. The one Based question- on your experience. Yeah. The one question I always ask everyone I interview is, in a life well lived, what do you most want to be remembered for? Mm. So I would tell everyone to ask themselves that question and work backwards from there. Because we've got our plans laid out for the next year, the next three years or five years. If you know what you want to be and you've got a 10-year plan, go crush it, right? But ask yourself from the reverse What do you want to be remembered for? What's the legacy you want to leave? And hopefully that matches up with whatever that plan is. Or even if there's no plan, it's the journey we're taking. I always ask myself that. I ask everyone I interview that. But to not just ask yourself, but to actually make sure that that's still part of your North Star and what you're journeying towards 
if that's not congruent with what you're doing day to day, mm. what if you die tomorrow? Right. Right. Now, what is it that you want to be remembered for? For kindness and leaving the world a better place. Mm. Not for Clubhouse, not for corporate America. Now, all those things have helped me do that, right? And having campaigns in the beauty and the sports industry to democratize sport and beauty for Clubhouse, because what I really focus on is democratizing information, access, and opportunity. All those are vehicles to do the thing that I want to be remembered for. Who knows what the biggest one is, right? But on Clubhouse, when we run pitch rooms and entrepreneurs get funded or we have a singing competition and the winner gets a recording contract with Chris Martin from Coldplay, right? These are life-changing moments. When I do a weekly office hours and mentor, I work with Mark Randolph from Netflix and we help him mentor at scale. The ability to even have vulnerable conversations where we share because something odd about the intimacy of voice is what makes Clubhouse so powerful, right? Mm -hmm. We can have conversations with strangers about fears and hopes, right? That's crazy. I've never met these people. Regardless what the avenue is, if I'm, like I said, going back to moving that needle every day, if I'm doing that a little bit at a time, today it might be Clubhouse. Who knows what five years from now it might look like? Even if I look back, what I doing that five years ago in the corporate world? I'm lucky I can say yes. It doesn't mean everything every day worked perfectly, but in the grand scheme of those balancing seesaw moments, can I still answer that? That answer is yes. Mm. So who knows what the avenue or the vehicle will be? Is Clubhouse going to be the next Facebook? Is it another app? Who knows? But I know right now it's an incredible tool for me to mentor and help and create opportunities at scale and to make friends right? Like in a year where we're locked inside, what an incredible place to cross paths with some of the most incredible people that are now a real physical part of my life, right? The amount of friendships that came from virtual voice-only audio app to physical friends that I actually have as part of my life and I count in my inner circle. How powerful is that? That's incredible. I love it. I absolutely love it. Now, Swan, is there anything that we didn't talk about that we should amplify to people out there. Do you have any projects on the horizon or anything of that nature? What I've realized is being an accidental creator has been pretty cool. And I'm trying to step into that light. So I started on Clubhouse a year ago when it was 30 people on the app every night. And I got to reconnect with old friends, make some new ones, but there was no titles of rooms. There was no moderator badges. We were just hanging out and having fun. And I learned something from all these amazing people. And of course, that's as that's scaled, I've done pretty well. And I was early, which is very lucky, but I was also really thoughtful about how I, how I moved around the app. So as I think about what this next stage is, Clubhouse has given me a chance to experiment. And I realized I love creating experiences and content. Now that's crazy because I spent my whole life saying there's too much content out there, especially in the last decade with the proliferation of digital. I'm like, there's too much content. What am I adding to the problem? (laughs) I want to tell stories that are unique and different and don't sound like everything else out there. I want to create experiences that make people go, wow. So I call myself an accidental creator because a year ago that was not the path. And now I just recently signed with Vayner Talent, which has floored me, right? And all sorts of opportunities are opening up speaking engagements, podcast deals, book deals, TV shows. What does that look like? So if anyone has ideas, I welcome, you know, guidance, mentorship, support. I'd love to collaborate with people. I realized I really like interviewing people. I like telling people stories. I'm okay telling my own stories, which I was never, I mean, most of this conversation was relatively personal. 
I mean, I did talks for two decades on corporate stages and never talked about most of this stuff, right? We talked about the campaigns that won, and I can go do that on another session with you. We can dig into digital marketing and the secrets from the big brands. And that's what I still do a lot of the talks on. But wow, what an amazing feeling of freedom to talk about anything you want. So I have no idea what this looks like. We're trying to figure it out together. So this next phase is figuring out who I collaborate with, what we build, and stories that humanize us and connect us. That's I the love story that. Who knows what that looks like? You need a podcast, Swan. I'm, t- I'm telling you right now, you need a podcast. You are absolutely amazing. I enjoyed this so much. I, I really, really did. I'm getting the chills just saying that. Uh, like, you really, really need a podcast. I would love to support any way possible. And I definitely appreciate this. Well, you're a great interviewer. I mean, we were just having a conversation over a cup of coffee. And I think that's what the best podcasts are. So thank you to you for creating such a great space for us to have a good dialogue. I appreciate that. Thank you again. Uh, we're going we're gonna to get you back on here one day, one day soon. So I, I appreciate it. I'm happy to do so. Thank you so much for this time. And I can't wait till this comes out. And that's a wrap. Episode number 190, officially in the books with our friend Swan Sit. Like I said earlier in this episode, if you found this to be of value, if this episode made an impact on you, please make sure you are sharing it. These episodes are totally free. We are totally dedicating our time, Swan and myself, to make an impact on our community here and showing the recognition of sharing it. Whether it is privately, we don't mind if it's privately, or if you do want to share it publicly on social media, make sure you are tagging us. You can connect with Swan in the show notes of this episode where all of her websites and social handles, all of that good stuff can be found and you can reach out to her directly if you would like to do so to thank her for the impact she made here on the show. Again, I urge you to make sure you are subscribing to the YouTube channel if you have not done so yet. And until next time, everyone, be blessed. Peace.